and welcome to Local Aotearoa, a podcast dedicated to what's happening in the world of local government and local democracy in New Zealand. With the newly elected councils around the country now all sworn in and getting down to the business of governing their respective districts or cities or regions, I thought it would be useful to take a look in a bit more detail at the current structure of local government and the roles within it. Now we've touched on this a bit throughout the show so far, but usually it's only been in so far that uh, how these structures and their roles interact with other issues at play that I'm talking about at at the time. It's also useful to think about what the structure and roles of in-local government are at the moment, as the review into the future for local government didn't actually issue any recommendations around future structures and roles in their draft recommendations. Instead, they've put up some concepts around what that could look like and asked for more feedback on them, but they haven't actually recommended anything explicitly yet. So for today, I'm going to focus on mayors of city and district councils as well as unitary authorities and the chairs of regional councils and what their powers and their their roles are actually all about. Um, This is largely because right now there's a few of these people who are in the news for various reasons. So I think it's useful to understand some of the things that are are at play as to why that's the case. And it it goes on, I think it's a bit more than just the fact that they, they are the mayor. There's you know, specific things that mayors can do and can't do that I think uh, are sort of informing some of these stories. Now, as we've discussed previously, local government in New Zealand is made up of three types of entities. There are territorial authorities, which we commonly known as the city and district councils, um, and they really have a responsibility for community building and land use planning and the infrastructure that supports those activities. And then there are regional councils, and they have an environmental planning and natural resource management focus, and usually they're managing things like public transport, and um, regional councils cover an area that um, will include multiple district and city councils as well. But then there's also unitary authorities, and these are councils that combine both the roles of district district and city councils and regional councils in a single entity. Now, it's worth quickly noting that that this term, from a strictly legal point of view, the term local authority, while it's often used interchangeably by everyone, and myself included, I'm guilty of this as much as everyone, it applies both to territorial authorities and regional councils, whereas a territorial authority is a type of local authority, whereas a regional council is not a territorial authority. Clear as mud? Um, and of course that all stops making sense as soon as you start talking about unitary authorities on top of it, so it all gets a bit jumbled up. Um, but generally just think of the hierarchy that you'll have city and district councils, you'll have a regional council that will cover an area of multiple city and district councils, they've got complementary responsibilities, um, and then sometimes you've got unitary authorities who do the jobs of, of both within a set region effectively. Now, New Zealand currently has six unitary authorities, and just to confuse you, some of these councils do call themselves district or city councils, but they are unitary authorities just to do your head in even more about this. Uh, The six of them are Auckland Council, Chatham Islands Council, Gisborne District Council, Marlborough District Council, Nelson City Council, and Tasman District Council. 
So just know when I'm talking about city and district councils, I'm not talking necessarily about the ones that have city or district in their names, but are actually unitary authorities. I'm generally talk, trying to talk about the ones that are just city and district uh, councils. Though in this case, I think because those unitary authorities also have mayors, we're gonna sort of talk, they do get included in this, but uh, I think generally it does get a bit confusing having having them named as such. They need to just have the one naming convention, guys. It's not hard, not hard. Now, in terms of that regional council thing I was just talking about before, in terms of the, the I guess, what they cover, um, and I'm using, I'm gonna talk about the Wellington region just because I live here and I know it better than any other region. Um, at the regional council level, we have Greater Wellington Regional Council which uh, is often called Greater Wellington or GWRC um, and as the name suggests it covers the Greater Wellington region and that's an area that goes from uh, the Cook Strait in the south all the way up to Ōtaki uh, on the western side of the North Island um, and just north of Masterton on the eastern side. Within the boundaries of uh, Greater Wellington sit eight city and district councils. These include Kapiti Coast, which is where I live, uh, Porirua City, Upper Hutt City, Wellington City, Lower Hutt City, which is usually called Hutt City, just to confuse you again, uh, South Wales Rapper, Carterton and Masterton. So come election time, along with voting for your city and district council, as well as any community boards that are within your city or district, you also vote for candidates to sit on Greater Wellington Regional Council. Now unlike your city and district council elections where you do vote across the city or district for a mayor to lead the council once it's elected. Uh, when it comes to regional councils you don't actually vote for the person who's going to chair the elected uh, body of that organisation. The chair of a regional council is elected by the new council after the election. So this often I guess leads to things, um, suspicions of horse trading in terms of how you go about getting that role and um, getting the votes necessarily to from your councillor colleagues to get it um, but conversely it does mean that those same councillors can and they have done they um they are able to remove regional council chairs if they want so it does sort of i guess balance the power equation between between the two parties uh, at the end of the day at that level um, as i said this is obviously a lot different from the mayors of city and district councils where the mayor is elected at large across the across the entire local authority um, and once they are elected they really can't be removed from their position unless the Minister for Local Government intervenes and appoints commissioners which is uh, what we saw happen up in Tauranga recently. Now as I said just before there are sort of pros and cons to both approaches uh, but knowing those differences between them I think is really useful to understanding some of the dynamics at play between the roles of a chair of a regional council and the mayor of a city and district council and how they might uh, I guess um, how the relationship might work with their fellow elected members um, and of course the unitary authorities I should make sure I shoehorn them into this uh, they elect a mayor in the same way that you would do for a city or district council and um, Auckland as a council the super city is a good example of this way you elect a mayor across the whole city now to some extent our system is designed around the idea that mayors and chairs are largely the first among equals at the council table. In most matters they've only got one vote unless there's a deadlock and their council has allowed the mayor or the chair to have a casting vote 
to break those deadlocks. Um, and that's not unusual in, in these sorts of setups where there's a chair and they get casting votes to to make sure that matters can be progressed. Um, so that's one definite benefit about being a chair. And I have, I'm just thinking about last term, I know there was at least one occasion where our mayor used a casting vote, there might have been another one. Um, and I remember when I was chair, I was quite petrified that I was going to have to use a casting vote uh, at, in one of the committees, um, but thankfully didn't have to in the end. Um, but anyway, uh, what really does make mayors, and I'm, I'll probably use the term mayor um, now rather than mayors and chairs, but know that it does apply largely to chairs, what I'm talking about. Um, what does make them the first among equals are the roles and powers that are bestowed on them as defined by the Local Government Act 2002. Now, the Mayor of Auckland does get some additional clout afforded to them thanks to the Local Government Auckland Council Act of 2009, but we'll talk a more about that soon. So what are those roles and powers? Well, they are, and I'm sort of quoting interchangeably from the legislation here, so apologies if some of this sounds very legal and some of it sounds like me rambling like it normally does. Um, I'm sort of mixing it in a bit here. But So that those roles and powers are to provide leadership for the elected members of the council as well as the people in the boundaries of the council, to lead the development of their council's plans, namely the long-term plan and the annual plan, policies and budgets for consideration of other elected members, uh, they get to appoint the deputy mayor, they get to establish the committees for the council, and they get to appoint chairs for each of those committees, or they can appoint themselves as chair of those committees if they so wish. Um, I think, I think by default, they are automatically sort of the chair of those committees. I think, I think. I need to go check that in the uh, legislation again. Um, but on those final three points, on appointing the deputy mayor, establishing committees, and appointing chairs of the committees, um, those are all effectively things that are ultimately at the leisure of the rest of the council as a whole. Now that is that elected members of a council can, if they are able to muster the votes, they can remove a deputy mayor who has been appointed by the mayor. Um, they can discharge or reconstitute committees and they can remove the chair of a committee if they want. But what uh, elected members can't do is they can't nominate their own dep deputy mayor or committee chairs unless the mayor declines to exercise the authority to do so. So, that, so that's really critical. So a council could remove a deputy mayor and unless the mayor doesn't want to nominate a replacement, um, only then is when the, the rest of the council can say, well, okay, we're going to nominate someone to fill the role instead. The mayor always, almost always has the prerogative to nominate someone. Now, such a situation has been playing out just recently with Gore District Council. Uh, the newly elected mayor there, Ben Bell, who I think is the youngest mayor in the country and possibly the youngest mayor we've ever had in the country. Um, not 100% sure on that fact. Uh, I'm just I'm hoping it's right. Um, but he's found that his councillors don't agree with his choice of deputy mayor. Now, at the time I wrote the script, uh, that council was going through the process to remove the deputy mayor from their position. Uh, and they also hadn't yet agreed to the mayor's proposed committee structure, which I think came in at a cool $300,000 more per year than their previous committee structure. So you can see th in that that the council table can push back on some of these things if they've got the numbers. Now what could theoretically happen is the governing body of Gore District Council could remove the deputy mayor from office and the mayor could then renominate them. And then the council could remove them, and this could literally go back and forth 
for as long as you want. Um, but that would be quite clearly dysfunctional. So what generally tends to happen in these situations is mayors try and work out a compromise candidate with their council to avoid getting into that situation. Because the chances are that if you if you did do that, if you did just end up in this endless circle of nominating and removing deputy mayors or chairs and or whatnot, the Minister for Local Government is going to intervene. Uh, they're going to intervene either by appointing observers to the council, or they might replace the entire council with appointed commissioners. Now that's clearly a less than ideal outcome if you're the mayor or if you're one of the um, councillors. So that's a really good incentive for you to actually compromise and reach a deal on who's going to fill these roles. Now it's also worth just very quickly mentioning that um, local authorities, well, councils, I'm always, I, I will, I apologise, I always switch these words around and I probably use them wrong, uh, incorrectly in some of the instances, but councils only employ one person um, and that's the council's chief executive. Now we'll dive into chief, chief executives and their roles and their relationship with the governing body in a future episode. but where that's relevant here is that the mayor or the chair will and this is thanks to the um the roles and powers of their position as being the mayor or chair they're generally going to have the closest working relationship with the chief executive of any elected member and that sort of makes sense and a lot of councils the mayor is effectively the only full-time person there they're going to have an office they're going to be constantly in uh, the council buildings um, so they're going to be you sort of dealing with the chief executive on a, a pretty regular basis now i did mention before that the mayor of auckland has a little extra clout afforded to their position and that's by virtue of the local government auckland council act now the first uh, sort of thing they've got extra thing they've got there is the Mayor of Auckland is specifically required by the Act, and I'll quote here, they are required to articulate and promote a vision for Auckland and provide leadership for the purpose of achieving objectives that will contribute to that vision. Now frankly, all mayors basically have to do this. They all have to, as I mentioned before, they all have to lead the development of their council's long-term plans, um, which is effectively what your vision is, that's how it's translated into reality. But it's interesting that it is specifically spelled out for the Mayor of Auckland. Um, now likewise, all mayors are effectively what I called in my 2019 campaign, I called um, the role of the mayor as being a cheerleader-in-chief for their respective city or district. Um, so in that regard, it, it's almost like the Auckland legislation is spelling out a bit of the obvious. Uh, but that does actually manifest itself in the way that the Mayor of Auckland is really quite visible in terms of spearheading things like the council's annual plan or generally you might see it in Auckland Council's case referred to as the annual budget or just their budget. Um, the Mayor um, Wayne Brown takes a very upfront role in leading that and just as his predecessors did as well um, and that's very different I think from the experience you get in other councils. Now this will vary a bit but I remember uh, there was some coverage I think media coverage of how Andy Foster sort of, I guess, tried to lead that process in Wellington City. But my experience here in Carpety last triennium was that our mayor took, you know, he took a very hands-off approach, I think, and let us work as a group of elected members to collectively get our vision and um, translate that into the long-term plan rather than sort of trying to lead it individually himself. So that, you know, that's one thing I think was really good from that approach. Now... In addition to all this, the Mayor of Auckland does have a few more specified roles and powers. 
They have the responsibility, and I'll quote again here, to ensure there is effective engagement between the Auckland Council and the people of Auckland, including those too young to vote. And again, that's, as I said, a direct quote, so this is that quite explicit um, responsibility to engage with those too young to vote. And the Act then goes on to say that the Mayor has the power, and I'll quote again, they've got the power to establish processes and mechanisms for the Auckland Council to engage with the people of Auckland whether generally or particularly, for example, the people of a cultural, ethnic, geographic or other community of interest. Um, and along with all that, they've got to establish and maintain an appropriately staffed office of the mayor, which while not stated, is basically part of allowing them to do everything that they're actually required to do in that role. Now where this does get interesting in terms of that office is that the mayor's office in Auckland does actually have a, speci a, a specified budget for it, and that is that specified budget is not less than 0.2% of the council's total budgeted operating expenditure for that year. Now currently for that, um, I understand the budget for that sits about around about maybe five, $5.2 million a year. Though it's worth noting that, that I understand again that that amount hasn't always been spent and often um, falls millions of dollars short uh, in terms of spending it in a given year. And that's a, that is at the discretion of the Mayor of the Day in terms of how much of that they want to spend. But that, that prescription of a mayoral, of a staffed mayoral office, complete with a specified protected budget like that, is one of the big novelties of the creation of the Auckland Super City. And I think it's really easy to understand the logic behind that. You know, at the time of amalgamation of Auckland's various councils, the population of Auckland was, uh, I think, 1.4 million. And having a single council governing that entire area is always going to be a challenge. And having one mayor governing that is always going to be a massive challenge for that individual. So from having talked to a couple of Auckland councillors, I think it's fair to say their workload is actually comparable to that of a member of parliament. Even though their, their sort of base remuneration is I think only about two thirds of what an MP would get. And they, I think they share maybe one support person between them all as well. So, and Whereas a MP would generally have staff in their electorate office, they've got staff in Parliament, um, you know, they might have two or three or four people supporting them to conduct their role as an MP. Now when you think about the Mayor of Auckland, um, and they're referred quite often to being one of the most influential people in the country by virtue of their role of leading our largest city, with all the population and economic and cultural and social influence that this city has, um, you know, they are at least as influential as a member of the a minister of the crown, if not even more so. So, from a really basic point of being able to enable a mayor to engage with people across the entire Auckland region um, and to advocate on their behalf to central government in Wellington, it does make absolute sense that you'd need to put in place a lot of the that resourcing necessarily necessary to actually support them to carry out that role because it is. To be perfectly honest, it's a mammoth undertaking for any individual to do. Now, other councils do provide staffing for their mayors. Now, whether that's a, an executive assistant at smaller councils or whether it's small teams of communications and policy staff um, for the larger metropolitan councils. Um, but the crucial difference is that the funding for those roles is ultimately at the discretion of the elected members of council. And this can lead to some messy situations. Now remember, remember we were talking about uh, Mayor Ben Bell and Gore? 
There has been some debate at their council table in Gore about the appropriateness of them funding a personal assistant for him. Um, and there's been a bit of discussion about why he can't just share the council CEO's personal assistant. Now, I think there was a similar situation last training. I think, again, this is just off the top of my head. I think it was Porirua. I think it was Mayor Mike Tana. And there's a bit of discussion about the appropriateness of him having a a political was it a political or a policy or a comms advisor um and the, you know there's a bit of debate in the community about the appropriateness of him having that resource um and how that i guess positioned him relative to other council elected councillors um, and i also believe up here in carpenter in training's past this definitely wasn't last training but i think it may have been a couple before that my understanding was that i think a previous mayor did have at least one dedicated communications focused um, staffer uh, but that funding was removed and again I believe that was at the discretion of the council table as well basically told the mayor you can use the uh, the the council's main communications team to do that but the point of all that is that councils and that I'm saying councils I mean the elected body of members here the governing body can and do withdraw funding for staff to support mayors now, whether this comes about due to a breakdown in the relationship between a mayor and the councillors, um, whether it's just simple penny pinching by governing bodies, um, whether it's just spiteful behaviour, um, the difference between most councils and Auckland Council in terms of that protected budget for the mayor's office and the discretionary approach elsewhere, that's a really stark difference, I think. Now, I'm a fan of the idea of having specified funding for a mayoral office that's protected by legislation. And that's one of the main reasons that I was just talking about is if you don't have it protected, it becomes a political football that I think runs the risk of leaving mayors less able to execute their responsibilities and their roles as required. Uh, and that's to the detriment of the regions that they're serving. Now, you could argue it reflects poorly on councillors for of drawing that funding um that's true as well i guess but i think when you sort of get mired down in the politics and you lose that bigger picture when the mayors are meant to be the ones who are you know leading their councils and driving the agenda forward i think it does create a bit of a a bit of an issue that that does um can get treated like a political football now another reason why i support that sort of standalone funding and i think it works quite well in auckland is that I'm a big advocate about this idea of the of having contestability of advice. Now, what that is is in the early '90s, early '90s, I think, or late '80s. This was a change that came into central government with ministerial advisors. And up to that point, what essentially happened? I think I've got the date right. It may have been slightly early in the '80s. Anyway, getting distracted. Slightly. The point is that what how it used to work in central government is that ministers would get advice on decisions that they were going to make from the government departments that were responsible to them. And the reliance was on the minister's own capabilities to assess that advice, um, ask any questions back and make their own decision on it. What the big change was, well there's a big concern that always got kicked about about the power imbalance between a government department that's got all these resources and policy experts and that that could effectively set an agenda that might be contrary to what the minister actually wanted to achieve but 
I guess all the the pieces on the playing board were weighted in their favour, and the minister, you know, it was hard to get that a second look or find um, not necessarily independent, but find an expert to review that and you know provide. Uh, advice on the advice as it were so what happened is you got these ministerial advisors created and they created they created this concept called contestability advice so the idea is that what got given to ministers by their departments wasn't the single source of truth that ministerial advisors and if you hired well you hired someone who's an expert in the policy fields that you were responsible for they were able to look at the policy advice that came through from your department and they could say, well, this isn't, you know, works in support of our government's, um, the sort of direction we want to go in, this doesn't, have you considered this? They could create, you know, they could effectively sense check the advice that was coming through to the minister to make decisions on. And like I said, if you hired well, if you hired an expert, you, in theory, are adding to the body of information available for a minister to make a decision. Where this breaks down slightly, of course, is when ministerial advisors get effectively used as political appointments to reward volunteers or party people, that sort of thing. But, you know, you're not going to get around that, really, I think. Um, a little bit of indictment on our system in terms of how often I'm aware of that sort of thing happening. But, you know, that's that's the reality of life to some extent, unfortunately. But anyway, bringing this back down to councils... What happens in councils isn't dissimilar to how it used to be in, gov in central government, and that is that all the advice on decisions for governing bodies to make comes up from council officials, and they're the ones who have access. Um, they essentially can control the flow of information up to elected members, and quite often, and this is my experience as well, quite often the, the information and the options you would get sort of... It did feel like you got railroaded into them wanting to, you to make a specific decision and you had to push back quite hard to go in a different direction. And I know, again, from my personal experience, I know that quite often when I got to ask questions of staff that they hadn't actually done a lot of the homework in terms of justifying why their recommendation should should be the one you were going to follow. You know, I remember having... This is about uh, representation reviews and whether you used a, a community panel to make the recommendations or whether you had councillors to sort of review and make the recommendations that went out to con consultations. And the preferred option that came back from staff was to have a community panel. Um, but when I sort of drilled down about the advice that they'd gotten about that and what formed, what evidence they had to support their advice, it was unfortunately, it was clear that that work hadn't been done and wasn't available. And... It was almost like they sort of hoped that we were just going to agree with their perspective on it. And it ended up that, you know, we sort of like, well, that's not good enough. If you want us to make this decision supporting you, you need to actually provide us with the evidence. So we pushed back on it and bought it in-house rather than putting it out to a community panel. Now, that's the sort of thing that I think, I think councillors could benefit, or councils as a governing body as a whole, Not, I'm not suggesting individual councils <laughs> councillors need um, assistance but I think councils as a whole could benefit from having access to the resourcing and I'm thinking resourcing in terms of policy advice in terms of commissioning consultants or whatever to allow them to actually have some contestability advice on the big decisions that councils make 
because um, otherwise again you're you are largely relying on the expertise of people who have been elected to roles that they're not necessarily able to carry out full-time um, and sometimes you your people are elected who are absolutely fantastic and know how to drill down know how to to I guess pick apart some of the recommendations that come to them and can really you know flesh uh, really find out why why those recommendations are what they are and what the evidence base is to support them but that's not always the case and I think it's really useful it'd be great if you could have that contestability of advice so you could have councillors able to access um, or commission experts to provide advice on really contentious decisions that is independent of the advice you get from council officers and this is not to say that council officers officers don't generally produce amazing work because I think 99% of the time they do produce great work um, but there are always some niggly niggly issues that it's you know just to ensure the right decisions are being made or as a counsellor you feel like you've got the right decision I said 99% it's probably it's probably more like 80, 80 to 90% that you'd probably agree with the decisions that our officers are going to make anyway or recommending you're going to make but there is those you know some of those real big gnarly things that having that additional ability to test ideas would be really useful and this is sort of where I think the Auckland Council model works really well where that sort of resourcing sits with the mayor and gives the mayor the ability to to lead things to test things to bring new ideas to the table to challenge advice that's coming up um, I think that works really well how you actually implement that across a local government sector that has over 70 councils and the exact numbers are escaping me right now I'm very sorry it's somewhere in the 70s um, that's where you start to get unstuck I think about this because I think in principle it sounds great but you have councils that range in size from Auckland Council down to Chatham Islands Council now 0.2% of operational expenditure for Auckland like I said works out at a little bit more than five million dollars but for the Chatham Islands I think it maybe works out at about twenty or twenty-five thousand dollars a year at best, uh, and that's not going to get you much, is it? For a sort of middle of the pack council like Carpety, I think that might get you around about three hundred and fifty. Uh, sorry, not three hundred fifty, one hundred fifty thousand. Um, the thing is, right? Yeah, about one hundred fifty thousand. So that might get you an executive assistant as well as some maybe part-time policy or communications resourcing. Um, but that's that's not too much either. So there's obviously some issues of taking a one-size-fits-all approach. You couldn't just go and specify 0.2%. But at the same time, I think you'd also struggle to necessarily make the case that Chatham's, the Chatham Islands Council has quite the same requirements in terms of that as Auckland Council does. So again, I think this is something I think would be good for the Future for Local Government Commission to look at at in their final report is to say well how do you actually properly resource oh sorry I should say support mayors via resourcing to to deliver their roles and execute their powers as required under the local government act um, and I'm not going to solve that on this podcast as much as I've tried to um, there's obviously a whole lot of other issues in terms of how you get it to work now as I mentioned before in this episode I've sort of largely talked about mayors um, and as I said I, I'm using that term interchangeably with chairs for regional councils it's just easier to say mayors rather than mayors and chairs constantly um, but like I said most of this, the situations you see 
that I've talked about play out. Um, they equally apply for regional council chairs as well. But of course the, the big difference, as I mentioned earlier, is the fact that the regional council chair is serving at the leisure of their elected members. And this is where, like I said, at the leisure of elected members, this is what happened to um, Marion Hobbs, who was the former chair of Otago Regional Council, and she got ousted by the councillors on there. And that was somewhat controversial at the time because they were perfectly entitled to do it, but it just... I don't think it had happened particularly, it might have happened somewhere else on the on slightly quiet recently, um, but that was quite a high profile one, not least because Marion Hobbs obviously being a former cabinet minister, um, but it was a very contentiously fought ousting and I think it just goes to show what can happen in terms of if the, the chair of a regional council doesn't have that relationship right or if there's this political ill will that exists, you can end up with a situation where you have you have infighting on the governing body that doesn't necessarily it's not conducive to a well functioning regional council, is it? If you've suddenly changing you've got uh, shenanigans going on to oust the chair and replace them metranium. Um I don't think that reflects particularly well. So It'll be interesting to see what happens in that space in terms of um, anything that comes out of the Future for Local Government Review. Now, sort of on that note, I think I might sort of park it there for today. And that's in part because I was sort of aiming for this to be a sort of very high-level overview of those roles and powers of mayors and chairs. And I haven't talked... I mean, it's quite obvious that mayors and chairs also go out and they're the sort of first protocol to open buildings, to give speeches at events, all that sort of jazz. They are the, the first protocol. Um, and if they're not to, able to do it, then they sort of work their way down to deputy mayor and then whoever their local councillor is. Um, and that's sort of a role, I guess. Uh, but it's not formalised in any particular way. It's just the mana that comes with the role. Um, but anyway, in terms of those formal roles and powers of mayors and chairs, as I said earlier, they may well change when the Future for Local Government uh, panel returns its final recommendations next year, notwithstanding the fact that uh, those recommendations need to survive both an election campaign um, and they need to survive the fact that the review hasn't really suggested too many changes yet about it. And they've sort of said, look, give us some feedback on what you think's working and what's not working, which is something I did. I've suggested all my contestability advice and set funding and whatnot, um, which I have to reiterate for them. Fun things you do over your summer holidays in terms of making submissions. Um, but that's, yeah, that's, I guess, sort of what the field of play looks like for mayors at the moment. Like I said, the first among equals, they have some specified powers that I guess they it gives the position some mana and authority, but a lot of those powers are at, you know, at the discretion of council as an elected a body of elected members to be able to push back on some of those if they want, especially so in the case of regional council chairs, which does pull things back to being that, like I said, first among equals. And I guess I, I sort of lean towards I'd like to see mayors have a bit more, almost be sort of executive mayors, sort of like what Auckland's mayor is, um, and giving them the ability to be more proactive and do more stuff independently, because I think... 
I think that's what, at least my experience is, that's what people wanted their councillors to be able to do more of, and it makes a lot of sense for the mayor to be able to do that. But that's obviously something that needs to to go through this review panel. It needs to be consulted on quite extensively, I think, as well. Um, and it'll be a pretty big change, I think, for the country. But I think, it, you know, it works pretty well in Auckland, if I'm perfectly honest, whether it's, you know, you can disagree with the specific policy directions of someone like Phil Goff or someone like Wayne Brown, but I think the idea of the, the mayor being able to impact, be empowered to, I guess, um, direct direct the boat like that, to captain, the, captain the boat, got to get these nautical, nautical references right. You know, empowering the mayor to captain the boat properly is, I think, a, a good thing. It helps make local government more relevant, or at least I hope it would anyway. So anyway, on that note, I think I might, like I said, I'll park things there. Um, in terms of the rest of the year, I'm sort of hopeful that I might get one final episode recorded before the Christmas break, uh, but it is slightly dependent on how a bathroom renovation we've got that's going to happen literally tomorrow. Um, it's meant to last for a week, so how that goes over the next week will be will be what determines if I get another an episode in, because then after next week it's end of school and I'll have two kids running around home with me not conducive to recording episodes but on that note fingers crossed we'll be back before the end of the year but if I'm not um, I'm Gwen Compton this is Local Aotearoa and until next time Hi Aotearoa